Many of you were here in September when we started in Genesis 1-1, and I said, the good thing is if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's right at the very beginning. And here we are almost at the very end, Jude, this little letter tucked in before this mountain we know uh, as the book of Revelation. And we're just going to find our, as I, as I preach and talk about this letter, we'll just find ourselves uh, going through several different verses this morning. Uh, some of you will remember just from your, your history class that in uh, 1775, the, the British Army was stationed in Boston. And so this sort of fledgling, what was going to become a country, uh, groups of people had gotten together known as the Sons of Liberty or the Patriots, had gotten together to, to begin to band together to say, you know, we want to break away from from England, and England realized that, so they start moving troops into major cities in America. And there were rumors in 1775 that, that the British uh, troops were just about ready to make their move. And their move was to take out the leaders. If we can take out the leaders and capture them, then maybe the, the movement itself will dissipate. And so uh, they had a, a specific way that is if the British soldiers were going to be on the move, there's a certain way to uh, alert everyone. And as they got on the move in April 18, 1775, the, the American patriots uh, went on the move, so to speak. And we know that as Paul Revere's famous Midnight Ride. And so uh, the, the British soldiers get on the move, and you remember if it's one if by land and two if by sea. So you put the lights in the, the church tower. Paul Revere takes one path, another man takes another path, and they're, they're, they're taking the, a horseback from Boston to Lexington, which is where John Hancock and Samuel Adams lived. And all along the way, they're alarming people to say, you know the famous phrase now that he's crying out, the British are coming. You know, the British are coming. He's, he's sounding the alarm. He's saying all along the way, hey, uh, the enemy is on the move and we've got to get ready. So the, the Minutemen, the Patriots have to gather together and they have to contend for their freedom. This is like the, the critical moment. And so Paul Revere makes his midnight run and they obviously come by sea and we know the history of that. You might say Jude is doing the same thing. He's, he's sounding the alarm. Jude is the half-brother of, of Jesus, the brother of James. So Jude and James were brothers, both half-brothers of Jesus himself. And he wrote just a few years before the apostle Peter. So Second Peter, in sort of in a, in a, a line, a timeline, comes first, and then just a, a year or so later is the book of Jude. And uh, you don't need to turn back with me, but in Second Peter 2, 2, Peter actually sounds a warning. And he says this, There will come a time when there will be false teachers among you. So this is a general letter to churches, and Peter the apostle is, 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 is moving off the scene, and he's warning, there's going to be false teachers among you, and they will, this is what he says, will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So these false teachers are going to move in, and they're going to introduce destructive heresies. They're going to even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
And they will bring swift destruction on themselves. So in Second Peter, Peter is warning there will be a time. And in Jude, a couple of years later, Jude is saying, they're here. Peter warned they would come in. Judah saying they are inside. And I'm sounding the alarm. I'm saying to the church in general, we have an alarming situation. It's time right now to say the false prophets are here. They're inside. We have to contend for our faith. And so Jude is this uh, Christian patriot, if that's the best way to say it. He's sounding the alarm to his church and to our church, to his day and our day, saying we must contend for our faith. We don't just have a problem with the world. We don't just have a problem with the people out there. We have an inside problem. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people, these are the people, they've crept in unnoticed. See, these false prophets that Peter said were coming, they have crept in unnoticed now, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude sat down thinking, I'll just write about our common salvation. I'm writing a general letter, and maybe he was just going to remind them about the gospel and say, we all share in this salvation. Let's just remember the gospel. But he, but he, he feels the need to sound the alarm. He, he sees that certain people have crept in. It's like a spiritual terrorists. They, they look the same as other teachers, but they come in and they're going to introduce these destructive heresies. He, he's concerned that these people are going to infiltrate the church and then blow up the gospel. And so he's sounding the alarm. He's sounding an alarm because he's worried that if we don't do something now, there may no longer be a common salvation to write about. The, the common salvation that everyone was taking for granted, you can sense for Jude, it's slipping through their hands. So we've, we've got to put our hands together. We have, to, we have to contend for our faith. So Jude sounds the alarm. Now I want to press a pause button right here and just make a, a note because of the season we're in. We're in a season right now for, of May, and this is every year, we, inter, we interview, we, we uh, nominate, interview, pray for elders of the church. And the primary role, there's several, but one primary role of the elder is to protect the congregation from people creeping in unnoticed. And so you need to pray for your elders. Because, you know, there's lots of things a church needs to do and should do, but this is a critical role. And there has to be people, there have to be men who stand and say, let's examine what's being taught from the pulpit. Let's examine what's being taught in a small group. Let's examine what's being taught in a Sunday school class. Let's make sure that somebody doesn't creep in unnoticed. They look like one of us, and then yet they come in, and what happens is they're, they're just going to blow up the gospel. So, so you need to be in prayer for those who are currently elders. They're on, listed on the back of your bulletin. Just put it in your Bible and pray for them anytime you see that bulletin. And, 
and pray as we elect an, a new elder or two, which we tend to do every year. Just pray for these men, that they would be the ones that would stand. Uh, apparently, one of the problems with the general church back then is that these people had slipped in unnoticed. So the elders weren't doing quite the job that perhaps they should have. And so so let's get back to Jude. So Jude is saying that the false prophets are in, the, the British are coming. He's sounding the alarm. And then he, he has this call, verse 3. Notice it's contend for the faith. And really just such a poor translation. Uh, some of your translations say contend earnestly. It just doesn't, the, the Greek word here is an all-out fight. And if you just say contend for the faith, it's like, come on, guys. I mean, that's not it. And, and Eugene Peterson really gets it right when he says this in his translation called The Message. I have to write insisting, I'm begging that you fight with everything you have in you for this faith entrusted to us as a gift to guard and cherish. You've got to fight with everything you have. This isn't just contending. This is an all-out fight. This is, I'm using all of my energy for this one purpose. I can't afford to sit on the sideline. I can't afford to just sort of think about it or every every once in a while get engaged. No, this is an all-out battle. And you you and I, we have to be prepared. We, we have to be ready to contend earnestly. We have to be ready for an all-out fight. Some of you will remember from just watching some kind of Civil War uh, history channel kind of thing. It's one of the things that happens every time you have a little history of the Civil War. They talk about the very first battle of the Civil War, which was just outside of Washington, D.C. And people thought it was just going to be, I don't know, like a boxing match. And so they went, they drove about 20 miles outside of Washington, D.C. to this one battle area. And they knew the, the soldiers from the north and the south were going to get together. And they went out to have a picnic and watch the fight. It's hard to even imagine. But they get the carriage together. They got their family together. They got sort of at a safe distance on a hill so they could see. And they put out their blankets and had some tea and sandwiches. And they just watched the war going on. till they started getting shot at. You see, Jude wants you to understand, his readers to understand, and I want you to understand, we're in a position, it's not a picnic anymore. We can't afford to be people on a picnic. It's an all-out fight for the truth. And we have to be ready to contend, not ready to just go on a picnic. And so Judah's coming in. He's standing here saying, guys, we've got to contend the, the British are here, they're coming, and if we don't do something now, if we don't contend for the faith, then we may not have a common faith to hold on to anymore. So just one question I would plan in your mind here. The church today, not just our church, but our church and the church universal. Do you think we're in an alarming situation? Because if you don't, I'm trying to sound the alarm. But if you don't feel alarmed, then it's, it's going to be hard for you to contend. Because you're going to say, ah, you know, uh, they do that and they do that. But I'm not in an all-out fight. I'm more like on a picnic. 
And so my first question to you, just to honestly assess, do you think we really are in an alarming situation contending for the truth? Now, my assessment with Jude is, yes, we are in an alarming situation. And if you would say that with me, then my question would follow up as, are you emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally uh, prepared for an all-out fight? See, you could say it's an alarming situation, but I'm out of shape. So every time the battle comes up, I just can't really wage much war because I'm not really ready spiritually. I don't know how to answer people's questions. When the, when the truth is on the line, I'm just sort of stuck. So we have to be prepared. We can't just be alarmed. We have to bring to the fight a, a readiness to contend. And that's what Jude's going to help us with in just a few minutes. So Jude mentions two things that we must do in order to contend, and I want to talk about those two things. One is we have to identify the enemy, and he spends most of his letter actually trying to identify the enemy. Secondly, we have to prepare ourselves. So let's just look at those two in turn. First, we're, we're going to want to identify the enemy. Who are we shooting at? Who are we aiming at? Who are we wrestling with? Verse 4, there's lots of things to say. I've just picked out a few. But verse 4, they are people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So in other words, they, they come to God. They say we believe in God. We believe in the grace of God. But after we receive the grace of God, then we can just live however we, we like. I can just follow my own natural desires. I've got the grace. He paid it all. And because I believe in the grace, this is how they get inside. They say, do you need grace? Oh, I need grace. Do you think the grace comes from God? Oh, it definitely comes from God. Okay, you got the grace of God. Yeah, now I can just go live however I'd like. So important to understand. Because people were slipping in unnoticed. And they were saying things like, you know, we no longer live under the threat of the law. For it is by grace that we've been saved. Not by our own works. And that's true. But but every good lie has truth embedded in it. And what they would do is then they would just tuck in this conclusion right behind grace. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. I can call myself a Christian. I can use words like grace and forgiveness. And then I can live any way I choose. That's a lie. That's not true. That's somebody who's working their way in, and if that sort of philosophy works its way into the church, the gospel explodes in a negative way. Paul directly confronts this kind of thinking in Romans 6, 1. He says this, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? You see here that question? I mean, if grace abounds to sinners, then the more I sin, the more grace abounds. So I guess it doesn't matter if I sin. And Paul says, God forbid, God forbid. And in the, in the, the Greek, one commentator said this. I love the way he said it. It's an expression of surprise. Like, I can't believe anyone would say that. It's an expression of surprise and strong objection at such stupidity. In other words, I can't believe anybody who really got the grace of God would be so foolish enough to think that I could just keep on sinning. 
But there were people who thought that way. So if you've ever heard this reasoning from someone else, and maybe you've heard this reasoning in your own, the chamber of your own mind, this kind of whisper that says this, I know what I'm doing or about to do is wrong, but I live under grace and it doesn't matter. That's a lie. It matters. It really, really matters. You can't just say, I've got grace, and therefore, I'm just going to follow after all of the desires that I like, whether they sort of line up with God's agenda or not. It does matter. And so when you hear that whisper, you need to sound the alarm on yourself. You need to say, the British are coming. They're in my mind. I've got to do something. I've got to call somebody. I gotta wake up my friends that are like Minutemen and say, I'm just about ready to go down the chute. Can you, can you rescue me? To reinforce the point, just strong enough by itself, then Jude, who's, who, if he was a preacher, I think he would use PowerPoint because he's just got one illustration after another. And you see it here in verses five, six, and seven. He's just trying to come back and say, okay, I've made this statement. I want, I want to show you three ways that these people who used to say they know the grace of God, but then they've let go and just live by, the, by their own passions. First slide comes up. I want to remind you, verse 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So let's just go back to our forefathers. God saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And afterwards... He destroyed those same people who did not believe. So, so here's the first picture. God saves Israel out of Egypt, yet there are some people here that don't actually believe in God. They're called the people of God. They say, I'm a person of God, but they don't really believe. And the way you know they don't really believe is they're not shaped by their salvation. Now, now, that's just a key phrase. They're not shaped by their beliefs. They say they've been saved, but they're not shaped by their salvation. They just say, I'm a person of God, and I'm not shaped by the salvation because I live however I want. Then you don't believe. That might be a cold bucket of water on somebody's face right now. But I am saving you from something that's much more destructive than a hurt feeling. If you say these things and you're not shaped by what you say, you don't believe. You believe in something else. And you can use grace and forgiveness and person of God and church. If you're not shaped by it, you're not a believer. This is a very sober warning to Jude, his church, and to us as well. Notice what happens to these people. They're destroyed. If Jude were here, he would say, people are destroyed who are sitting in the pew. I'm not talking about people out here. That's a totally different sermon. I'm talking about people in here who say one thing, but they're not shaped by it. And you're going to be destroyed. Don't be destroyed. The British are coming. You're, maybe you're part of the British. Take off your clothes and get on some new clothes. Get on the right side. Verse 6, second picture here, trying to just drill down on this one point. 
God dealt decisively with Israel, he also deals decisively with angels. And the angels, verse 6, who did not stay within their own position of authority. See, God has boundaries for everybody. And the angels, just like mankind, decided, hey, I, don't, I just don't like this boundary. I'd rather be my own authority. I'd like to choose what I want. I, don't, I want God to bless my lines. I don't want to live inside of his lines. What happens to those angels? They're kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Finally, verse 7, the third picture. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. We're sort of getting away. We've got the people who first said they were part of God's plan. Then we have these angels. And now we have Sodom and Gomorrah. Serves as a, a warning for all of those who wish to follow after their own sexual, lustful desires rather than follow after God. I mean, if that's not true today, I don't know what's true. That the sexual desire is the ultimate desire. See, they, they sexual, see these phrases, sexual immorality. That's any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. An unnatural desire or some, some translation, strange flesh, homosexuality. So sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. All of those are wrong according to the Bible. But Sodom and Gomorrah decided, I'd rather live, live after my desires, my personal desires, than God's desires. My desires trump God's desires. And so what happens? Punishment of eternal fire. So, I mean, this is a hard sermon. Because all three of these people, they're all outside of God. No matter how they may look, we've got angels, we've got the people saved of Egypt, we've got Sodom and Gomorrah. They're all either destroyed, kept in eternal chains, or punishment of eternal fire. So these are sober warnings. Jude, I just pictured Jude as like this, this single soldier. But behind him is this great wall of revelation. And it's coming. It's like a great wave. And he's standing there like a single soldier, standing in the shadow of revelation. The apocalypse is coming. The, the four horsemen are charging behind him of the apocalypse. And he's saying, right now, it's alarming. You've got to hold on to Jesus, and you've got to follow after Jesus. It, the, the, this timeline is just about ready to crash to an end. Where are you? Do you know where you are? Don't be faked out by yourself. Don't be think, thinking that just because you use grace and you come to church and you eat or you get some water on yourself, that's not it. You say you have a salvation is your life shaped by that salvation. If it's not, Jude is a strong warning. Notice verse 12, like this little picture again, a PowerPoint slide. These people who slipped in unnoticed are like blemishes. Better, think of clearer translation, they're like hidden reefs. So, 
So such a great picture. Because you know where reefs are? Just offshore, right? And it looks like you're just about ready to come to heaven shore and you get stuck on a reef. You think you're going in the right direction, but your, your bow just plows into this reef of, I, I would rather really honestly not be shaped my, by my salvation. I would rather my desires be in control. I'd rather stay in my authority and in God's authority. There's all kinds of ways to get, to shipwreck your soul on this reef. And you don't see it. See, the reef is just underneath the surface. And these false messages can come in and just grab a hold of you and you can be so close and yet you don't make it to the shore. Two more characteristics here of just identifying the enemy. Verse 8, they rely on their own dreams. They reject authority. Their, their own dreams, their, their dreams, their words have authority. You can hear this a lot of times on religious channels. If I speak the words, then it must come true. Gosh, you can hear this today if you want to. That's a lie. That's somebody living by their own authority. My words have authority. My words have power. Your words don't. God's word has power. Now, if you speak God's word, it has power because it's living and active. Your words, oxygen, carbon dioxide, that's what those things are. They reject authority. They, they become their own authority. And I must warn you as your pastor, I don't, I don't care how winsome the person is behind this pulpit or on the television screen, how persuasive, how intelligent they may be, how compelling their dream or vision it is, they all must fall under the authority of God's Word. If they do not fall under that authority, then run. Run. Verse 10, they live by instinct. This is, oh, this is so, Jude could have written this today. They live by instinct. Verse 16, they follow their own desires. In other words, their instincts, their personal passions become the barometer of truth. How do I know what's true? How do I know what's good? How do I know what's right? What's the barometer that these people use? Their natural desires. That's a bad barometer. That is a faulty barometer. But today, today, if you want to justify almost any behavior, or you want to characterize a lifestyle as good, you just say it's a personal instinct, it's a natural desire, it's like a trump card. Hey, that's the way I was born, that's, that's the way God made me, that's the way I feel. And once that person sort of lays that card, it's like you can't say anything. God says something. That's a bad barometer. I got all kinds of natural desires that shouldn't be follow up on. Why? Because I'm living underneath a different authority. I'm not my own authority. And whenever my natural desires, no matter how strongly they were, they, they were inbred in me maybe, or however I got them, they all have to fall underneath God's authority. If I say... I believe I'm shaped by that belief. You can't just live any way you want. So if you're here and you're non-Christian, 
you might say, wow, that guy was on fire today. My question, just to think about whether you come back or not, is, is there any word that could exercise final authority in your life? Or do your words get that? If you're, if you're not a believer and you're saying, you're living by some word. Your word, your parents' word, some word you wrote, read in the book. There's some word you're living by. You think this is the truth. Some desire you're living by. Is it possible that any outside word could have final authority other than your own? If you're a Christian, does God's word have final authority over your desires? Does it really? Or is the Bible like a buffet table? And you just say, yeah, I like what he says there. I like that part. Yeah, I don't think about that part. Move on. See, that's how a lot of people say, oh, yes, it's an authority, except for this one area. The one area I really like and I don't want to give up. Well, then it's not an authority. You're on a picnic. Four ways we're going to close here. It all could be sermons, but I just have sentences here. Verse 20. He's making a transition, say, but you, beloved. In other words, we've identified, you know, the enemy now, but you, beloved. Here are things that we need you to take a look at. First of all, build yourselves up. This word so critical, especially for today, yourselves is plural. It doesn't mean build yourself up. It means build yourselves up. As a group, it's it's Christianity is not a solo practice. It's a, a community project. And I hope that when you come to church on Sundays, you realize that one of your primary responsibilities is to build each other up. Not to just come and say, I've got my cup, it's empty, and I need a good sermon, and I need a good song, and I need a good Sunday school class. That's good. That's part of what we're trying to do. But you're supposed to spill over into other people. You're supposed to build them up. And so it's so perfect today because when we have Sam Husky or Rixie or Abigail or Maddie or Malia or Nate or Lily Kate or Marcella or Noelia or Brian, these people are coming today and they're begging you, would you build me up? These young men and young women, they're 10, 11, 12. I mean, Sam, what, 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 what did Sam say? What was the quote? I've got an insane amount to learn or something awesome like that, she would say. Sam, what did you say? Yeah, how is she going to learn that? People building her up. People coming and saying, Sam, how can I help you? And then Sam turning back around, which she's already doing in the youth ministry. How can I help somebody else? So you've got to build yourselves up. Secondly, you've got to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of times you hear this phrase and you just think it's, it feels like I've got to have incense or a candle and I've got to have the sunlight just right. And that's not, that's not at all what it is. John 14, Jesus says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. So how do you know you're hearing from the Holy Spirit? You're reading God's word. That's how you know. You're not, you don't have your eyes closed and you go, God, just whatever you want to say. No, not whatever you want to say. Cause I've got unnatural desires that speak pretty loud at that moment. I need this to inform me what I should pray, how I should think, how I should act. 
And so the Holy Spirit's always going to draw me and drive me back to the Word of God. And so maybe you don't have a good practice on reading and studying the Word of God. Let me just give you a five-day challenge, one week, all right? So we'll just take the book of Jude. It's 25 verses. And here's my challenge to you. If you've got a plan, do your plan. But if you don't have a plan for the two or three that I'm speaking to right now, <clears throat> if you don't have a plan, here's a plan. So you, you just read Jude every day. 25 verses doesn't take you very long. Then you go back, you just take five verses. And you just focus on those five verses for five days. So you get through it in five days. See, seven days, I'm giving you two days of grace because I need that. And so I'm re- I just read through the book of Jude. And then I go back in my first day. I'm just going to focus on these first five verses. And I'm going to think about them. I'm going to pray about them. If there's something in these verses I don't understand, like when it says Korah's rebellion, and you go, no idea what he's talking about. Well, then you just go back and find out in the Old Testament, what is Korah's rebellion? But you could just look at verse 1, Jude, a servant of Christ. Now, I'm just thinking about how I would pray about that. Jude, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He's the brother of James, and he's a servant of Christ. He's underneath the authority of Christ. God, today, I want to be underneath your authority. I know myself. I love to be in charge. I love to be in control. And and my prayer is that I'm your servant today. Whatever door you would open, however you would see it fit to use me, I'm a soldier in your army, and you put me in that place. So you could make that just, that could be your prayer. And we've, we're only in the first phrase of verse 1. God, I'm so glad you called that you love me and you're keeping me. Because if it's up for me to keep myself, I'm sunk. But you called me before the foundations of the earth. You have loved me before the foundations of the earth. You are going to keep me. And that's going to keep me moving forward as your servant today. You see how that happens? So that's just a sample. That's how you do, that's how you pray in the Holy Spirit. Third thing, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is obey the commands of God, John fifteen ten. If you obey my commands, you will remain in the love of God. So you, you need a community. You need to pray in the Holy Spirit. You need that, that directs you back to the Word of God. Then you need to do what God's Word says. And finally, verse 22, you need to have mercy. Have mercy on people who doubt. Have mercy on people who are trapped in sin. The, the, the cry for mercy is... God, would, could you go out of your way for somebody like me? When blind Bartimaeus, remember Jesus is walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's right before his last week. Blind Bartimaeus, he's sitting on the side, right? Jesus, son of David, have, could, could you come my way? Could you go out of your way to come my way? And Judah's saying to the church, you got to go out of your way to come some way to a doubter and to a sinner and rescue them. You don't come down with judgment. You come out of your way with mercy. Oh, I know where you are. I was trapped in that same trap. And I'm not sending instructions. I'm coming myself and I'm going to help you get out. That's mercy. 
Judgment is, hey, don't do that anymore. You know what? That doesn't help. I try that to myself all the time. I need a guide. I need, I need the Holy Spirit. I need somebody to, to help me to come with mercy. Christ Community Church. It's not time to be on a picnic. The church in America has been on a picnic for a long time. And so whatever they may have been afraid of 20 or 30 years ago, it's inside. Our biggest battle is not with the world. It's not with the election. It's not with the laws of North Carolina and which bathroom you can use. That's not it. It's inside. But you have to ask yourself, do I feel that alarm? And then am I prepared for an all-out fight. So we come to the communion table this morning. It's just it, We just need to ask ourselves when you come forward, it, has your salvation given shape to your life? Or are you just a phony? Now, we're not asking for perfect people to come forward, but we are asking for people who trust. Hey, I, I just don't want, I don't want me to be the authority. I want you to be the authority. Do, do you remember God's mercy? As you come up, you think about God's mercy. But, it, but when you come to the communion table and we sit and watch people come, please realize it's not just communion with Christ that we're having. It's a community taking communion. And so when you see one of these eight kids come up for the first time, pray for them. Pray for them that their soul would be built up. So that in 20 or 30 or 40 years, they're, they're taking lead in some way. They're contending for the faith. There may be somebody that comes up that you know is hurting or in trouble. Pray for them. It's not just you and the Lord. It's you and the Lord and everybody here is taking communion together. Let's pray together. Lord, I am thankful for this little 25-verse book. It's tucked in the shadow of Revelation could have been written today. I, I need to heed the warnings in my own soul. We must heed those warnings in our church. We must be ready to contend. But we serve the one who really has fought the battle and won the battle at the cross, and that's your son. So we come we pray for those who come forward. They have trusted in you and know that you're going to, you've called them, you love them, and you're going to keep them to the end. Would you strengthen them with this time? Would you help this body encourage one another to build ourselves up? You, on the last night that you were betrayed with your disciples, you took the cup and said, this is my body for you, you all. This is my blood, my body. It's given for you all to, to take.
to be encouraged by me and then to turn and encourage one another. Lord, we pray that you bless this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. The music will play and then the ushers will come by. And if you're trusted in Christ, you come forward and receive God's grace and mercy to you.